This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear how a mother who lost her daughter in the 2012 Aurora shooting is helping survivors of the shooting this week in Boulder. They can hear it from a policeman, they can hear it from a counselor, but there's nothing like hearing it from somebody who has lived through it. Plus, we hear about the history of anti-Asian discrimination in the West and how it still continues today. Those conversations and more, just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Alana Schreiber. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. In Boulder, residents are still reeling from Monday's shooting at King Supers that left 10 people dead. We begin today's show by reading their names. Denny Stong, Nevin Stanisic, Ricky Olds, Trelona Bartkoviak, Terry Liker, and Suzanne Fountain. Kevin Mahoney, Lynn Murray, Jody Waters. And Eric Talley, a 51-year-old husband and father of seven. He was the first police officer to respond to the shooting. Tally's police cruiser has been parked in front of the Boulder Police Department headquarters since Tuesday morning. Residents have shown up in droves to pay respects with flowers and American flags. I think that's just so incredibly sad. It's like you can just feel the loss in the whole city. The energy of the city just feels very sedate and, and, and sad. Boulder resident Patricia Sermon says she didn't know Tally personally, but she would like to thank him for his service. I just think that it's important to reflect and honor his sacrifice, especially as a member of this community here in Boulder. Um, It's such a wonderful place to live, and I just think that we all deserve to feel more safe. Boulder Police Chief Maris Harold called Tally's actions responding to the shooting heroic. The other nine victims were not members of law enforcement. They were grocery store workers and other locals. Outside the King Supers in South Boulder, hundreds of residents have been paying their respects. Pastor Michael Dean taped a sign on a chain link fence that's now lined with hundreds of bouquets of flowers. Uh, it says pray for Boulder. Dean's church is just five minutes up the road from the store. He's worried the community won't be able to mourn and process the tragedy together due to coronavirus restrictions. And this one appears to be people are secluding themselves even more now. And so that's what we're here to do is that the community's still here, we're still here. There's still hope, there's still light in a dark situation. And so I hope that that kind of changes. Several residents we spoke to talked about how central the Table Mesa King Supers has been to the South Boulder community. They shopped for food there, connected with other residents, and knew the names of store staff, people like Terry Liker. I park over in the West Lot and walked out and saw Terry, you know, helping another customer. And 51-year-old Terry Liker is one of the 10 people who died in the shooting. Dawn McSavity describes Terry as a kind person who always wanted to make conversation while helping with bagging. You recognize the staff and you know the names of the employees that help you consistently and regularly, and she was um, she was a bright spot. McSavany says she had just finished buying groceries there less than an hour before the alleged gunman entered the store. She still has the receipt. She hopes to see the store open again soon. This is going to be a trauma that's not going to go away for a long time. and. It's going to need to be a lot of healing and um, I, I just think social support and structure to help this particular shopping center get back on its feet. 
On Tuesday, social workers and counselors in Boulder organized a virtual support group for people traumatized by the shooting. Vigils are happening at various times, both virtually and in person. And if you need mental health support, the state's crisis line is 1-844-493-8255. You can also text the word TALK to 38255. As we continue to learn more about the shooting, many across northern Colorado are trying to process what happened and where to go next. KUNC's Lee Patterson spoke with Sandy Phillips on Tuesday afternoon. Since losing her daughter in the Aurora Theater shooting nine years ago, Phillips now helps families and communities cope in the aftermath of gun violence, sometimes even driving to the scene of mass shootings with her husband in their RV. KUNC's Lee Patterson has this conversation. You work with family members, loved ones, community members in the aftermath of mass shootings. Mm -hmm. Help our listeners understand what is this time like for them right now? They're in total disbelief and shock. They're not going to remember everything that's going on around them, everything that they're hearing. They're going to be very confused and devastated. You you can't put the pieces together. Uh, I remember a brain fog for gosh, several months, really, um, and not being still not being able to put things in perspective time wise. Um, it's been very, very hard. My, my husband has filled me in on things. Friends have filled me in on things that were said or done um, during that initial first few days up until the the people started going home from from the memorial. Um, so it, it's I, I know what they're going through. They're shell-shocked and literally shell-shocked and don't know what to do. And that's our job. So our job is to go in and literally hold their hands and tell them, this is what you can expect next. And this is what's going to happen next. And then you're going to have a trial and what that means and how that happens they they can hear it from a policeman, they can hear it from a counselor, but there's nothing like hearing it from somebody who has lived through it. And our job is to just give them knowledge and to let them know that they are going to live through this and that their lives are forever changed. And it's okay to be angry and sad and devastated at this point. And that will in time, find its level, and you will continue to mourn the rest of your life for your loved ones. How is the experience of processing what happened different for people who have no attachment, but who is still shaken by what happened? How is that a different experience from what you were just describing? Well, they're initially very upset, and um, most choose to turn it off after a day or two because it's too upsetting and they get back to their normal routine and not realizing that they too are just one degree of separation from a bullet changing everything in their lives. Because we have a a mass shooting every day in America, Um, but we don't hear about them because they're in neighborhoods or they're domestic violence or they're, uh, we want to think that they're gang related, which very seldom they are. Um, So, you know, we we tend to, to think that we're safe in our bubble um, and just turn the TV off and and go about our our jobs and our work and and our lives. And this can literally happen 
every single day to anyone, anywhere, at any time. Looking ahead in the coming days, weeks, perhaps months, how can Northern Colorado residents who have been affected by the shooting in Boulder process the trauma and care for their mental health? We have found that the people that do the best at getting back into some semblance of life are people that tell their stories uh, anywhere they can, even though it's painful, even though they break down. We know that telling the story helps them process their own grief. It also helps people to understand the pain of survivors. We know that if they get trauma therapy early on, they tend to, to re recover quicker um, and do better without the devastating grief where they can't function. You can take a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And I will tell you that those who don't embrace it, we have also observed in time, sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's five years, sometimes it's nine years, but um, we always see an anger and a rage and, a, uh, and, and marriages break up, jobs are lost, uh, relationships are lost. And it comes from that not, not healing oneself. What are you doing to care for your own mental health these days? What is something that's giving you joy? Oh, very good question. Because, you know, I think a lot of survivors of gun violence don't realize at first that they're ever going to have joy again. And mindfulness has really helped me tap into that. Uh, being aware when the wind blows through my hair and uh, how it how the sun feels on my shoulders. And when I'm gardening, seeing a, a new bud appear on a flower, tending to my roses that aren't my roses, but they they belong to the homeowner where we're staying. And I'm care, I'm caring for them like they're my own, my adopted roses. So joy is something that you do find again. It's different. Uh, my son got married last November, and it was a beautiful, very small, private wedding. And I was so overjoyed for he and his his bride. She's a lovely human being. And I was happy. I used the hashtag happy sad because I was so happy for him. But I was sad that Jesse wasn't there and that we were never going to enjoy that with her. So you hang on to the moments of joy and realize that they aren't going to be the high, high that you might've had before, but it's still good. And um, you focus on that and be thankful for that. That was KUNC's Lee Patterson speaking with Sandy Phillips, who has been traveling across the country since 2012 to help families and communities cope in the aftermath of gun violence. And for anyone listening right now who needs mental or emotional support, or know someone who could use that kind of support, services are available and free of charge at the CU Event Center in Boulder from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Again, these services are free to the public. You can also call the Disaster Distress Helpline at 800-985-5990. And if you're looking for the latest coverage on this story as it continues to unfold this week, head on to our website, kunc.org. There you'll find the most up-to-date news and more info about the resources we just mentioned. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC.
I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Alana Schreiber. Last week, a white man shot and killed eight people at Atlanta-area massage parlors. Six of the victims were Asian women. This fits into a devastating trend of anti-Asian hate incidents increasing over the last year. According to the nonprofit Stop Asian American Pacific Islander Hate, 3,795 anti-Asian hate incidents were reported across the country between March 2020 and February 2021. The previous year, 3,292 incidents were reported. Anti-Asian hate has existed in America since the country's inception, and it is deeply rooted in the American West. Here to talk about this with us is William Way, a history professor at the University of Colorado Boulder and former state historian. He's also the author of Asians in Colorado, A History of Persecution and Perseverance in the Centennial State. William, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start by talking about the beginnings of the American West as we know it today. New economic growth in the region at the time was largely dependent on railroads, canals, mines, farms. And a lot of this crucial infrastructure was built by workers from various Asian countries. Tell us about what was going on at that time in the 19th century here and what brought these Asian workers to the West. The Asians who came to the American West did so because of various push-pull factors. They were, in the case of the Chinese, uh, pushed out of China because of poverty and instability. They were pulled to the United States, specifically to the American West, because there was a great demand for labor. And the Chinese were fully prepared to provide that labor in order to support their families back in China. Tell us about the role of Asian workers. So they were brought in to work on these projects and under the pretense that they could support their families. How did their early days in in the state go as it was being built, as these projects were happening? In the state of uh, Colorado, they had arrived after having uh, built the western portion of the Transcontinental Railroad, the Central Pacific. The Transcontinental Railroad was a very important means of transportation across the continent. It, in effect, linked the United States from coast to coast. The Chinese were instrumental in building the Western half. So if you consider the unification of the country important, you have to certainly acknowledge the workers who had built it. And in the case of Colorado, After finishing the railroad, they sought other work and, quite frankly, could do all kinds of work in the state, though they could be found mainly in the construction of its infrastructure. They provided, if you will, the physical labor necessary to build that infrastructure. It's clear these workers brought a lot of economic value through their labor to the new state and the region, but they faced discrimination, didn't they? Unfortunately, that is the case. They were viewed as foreign, but they were no more foreign than the other immigrants that were in the state. I think the difference lies in the fact that they were people of color as well as foreigners or immigrants. And because of that, they suffered from the problems of racism and anti-foreignism. The United States has had a long history of nativism, and nativism, certainly in the 19th century, was characterized by anti-foreignism, 
anti-radicalism and anti-Catholicism. This anti-foreignism would haunt the Chinese from that period to the present. What systems were in place then in the early forming of the West that are kind of still in place today that are perpetuating these views on nativism? Or do you think it's maybe less policy and something else going on? Things have changed over time, though the pattern of systemic racism persists. One of the problems has been, of course, our immigration system. And our immigration system, as people like to say, is is broken. It is a system that has dogged the Chinese for years. Uh, Originally, the immigration system kept the Chinese out of the country, beginning with the Page Act in 1875, which uh, kept Chinese women from entering the country. Then in 1882, with the Chinese Exclusion Act, which kept Chinese workers out of the country altogether. That uh, exclusion law wasn't uh, repealed until World War II. The United States thought it was rather unseemly to be keeping the people of an allied nation from entering the country. And then, of course, the entire system that had been established in 1924, which established or imposed quotas against Southern and Eastern European immigrants and excluded most Asians out of the country, was repealed in 1965. And the Chinese were once again allowed to enter the country in numbers equal to other immigrants. So there has been a, you know, a series of ups and downs. But through it all, the Chinese were nevertheless perceived as a, a foreign element, regardless of, once again, their naturalization and whether they were born in this country. This perceived foreignness has uh, reduced them to, quite frankly, second-class status. Historians have noted that throughout the history of this country, hate and discrimination toward Asian people has often risen in times of economic turmoil and in times of disease. How does this current rise, this current wave we're seeing in anti-Asian hate incidents fit into this historical trend? For one thing, they are considered vulnerable people and are therefore often selected as uh, scapegoats for some of these problems, these economic problems. They are easy to persecute, easy to blame, certainly a lot easier to blame than uh, the institutions that might have, in fact, given rise to the economic problems. In terms of a disease, uh, this invariably creates fear and anxiety among people. And once again, they seek to blame someone for this. And they often view Chinese uh, as being, of course, exotic and therefore carriers of diseases that they themselves cannot easily describe or contain. How does it feel to be a historian to look back at these periods in time and see what was happening then, learn what was happening then, and then see it happening today right outside your window? I see it as simply an unfortunate recurring pattern. Until we address the problem of systemic racism, this pattern will unfortunately persist. My duty as a historian is to be able to document so that we can understand it and learn from it. William Way is a history professor at the University of Colorado Boulder and is the former state historian. 
Dr. Wei, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. When the Trump administration rolled back part of the Clean Water Act last summer, Arizona was left in a lurch. The state relied on the landmark law to keep its arid streams free of pollution. But with the federal protections limited, Arizona decided to come up with its own set of water quality standards. As Arizona Public Media's Ariana Brocious reports, not everyone is on board. For the last two years, the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality has been at the center of the state's attempt to craft the new rules. Trevor Bajori is director of the agency's Water Quality Division. He says a proposed set of rules now moving through the state legislature will help fill the regulatory gap. This legislation provides immediate protection for Arizona's wet waters. These are waters that we drink, waters that we fish in, and waters where we recreate. The new program would create a list of protected surface waters determined by the state and a panel of farmers, city leaders, industry groups, and environmentalists. That list could be modified in the years to come. But more than a dozen environmental groups say the current proposal is lacking. They say one gaping hole is the fact that ephemeral waterways, those that only flow after rain or snow, will not be protected. Chris Randall is president of the Arizona Riparian Council. We have areas that only flow when there's a precipitation event. That is the way it is in our desert ecosystems, and it's not taking in the science of how our hydrology in Arizona works. Randall and others say the protections are too narrow in the current proposal and don't address the consequences of leaving ephemeral waters unprotected from pollutants. That's the same criticism lobbed at the Trump administration for its rollback of the Clean Water Act. It's concerning. If you're not dealing with it, at what point do you deal with it when it becomes a problem? That's a little too late. Randall, who spent 11 years working as a state water quality regulator, says if the bill passes in its current form, it's unlikely the state would have any incentive to expand protections in the future. It probably won't be there. There's no motivation for them at that point. The Arizona Farm Bureau, along with the mining industry and developers, is in favor of the bill. Stephanie Smallhouse is the group's president. Six years ago, the Obama administration expanded the definition of waters protected under the Clean Water Act. Smallhouse says that made farmers and ranchers nervous about being accused of polluting streams and rivers. It was very hard to understand whether you were going to need a permit or not. It was difficult to understand whether the exemptions for agriculture applied 100 percent of the time or only certain times. Smallhouse says the Farm Bureau supports the Trump administration's rollback, which dramatically reduced the waters that fall under federal protection because it provided more clarity and put the onus for protection under state control. Her group supports the state's proposed regulations, which she says have clear exemptions for agriculture. So we feel like it's protecting clean water, it's protecting our waterways, it's protecting them in areas where there is actually water, which is helpful, and the rules are clear. Still, others say this legislation isn't yet ready to become law. Just before the bill passed in the Arizona House on a narrow vote, Democratic Representative Aaron Lieberman urged his colleagues to vote against it. I just want to share that the city of Phoenix, which provides water to an enormous number of Arizonans, is opposed to this bill as currently constructed. There's a lot of challenges, a lot of concerns with this, and I think we need to go on a lot slower uh, pace with this. Some people believe that more should be regulated. Some people should be believe that less should be regulated. Again, Trevor Bajori with the state's Department of Environmental Quality. Our interest is ensuring that the waters that are out there today that are unprotected, that people are enjoying and engaging in, are protected. Ultimately, that decision on ephemeral washes is a policy call that our elected officials need to make. Arizona is charting its own course, while the Trump-era rule change is tied up in court. 
Bajori says they're monitoring those lawsuits, but any changes aren't likely to happen quickly. So this program is still ultimately required to make sure that there's a baseline in Arizona so that we understand what waters in Arizona are regulated and which ones are not. He says if federal law expands protections again, that would still take precedent over state rules. I'm Ariana Brocious in Tucson, Arizona. That story is a part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River Basin produced by Arizona Public Media in partnership with KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. That's our show for today. I'm Alana Schreiber. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.